Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name's Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Professor Mark Dodgson and Professor David Gann. They're the authors of a book called The Playful Entrepreneur. So before we get into that, just quickly to say that I mentioned on the last episode with Grace Petrie that I'm doing a talk in London um, in January for Action for Happiness. It's on the 21st of January and I was kind of rambling at the end and said I don't know if the uh, booking form for this has gone up yet. Well, I know that it has now because uh, Mark from uh, Action for Happiness actually emailed me about it. So um, that is now live. We'll put that in the show notes. So if you want to come and see me in London, it's a free event. It is on Monday, the 21st of January. And I think it's pretty much a kind of first come, first served kind of ticket thing. So um, get on there. We'll put the link to this in the show notes. You can find that at getbeyondbusy.com. Hopefully see you there. So let's get into the episode. This is... Mark and David, and we're at Imperial College, and um, they've written this book. It's called The Playful Entrepreneur. And what was really nice about this book was it was full of really nice stories about how taking playful approaches, being open-minded, thinking differently can really help not just people in entrepreneurial roles, but I think just generally people in work, actually. I think a lot of this stuff is really transferable. So it's a really interesting book. It's called The Playful Entrepreneur, How to Adapt and Thrive in Uncertain Times. And here's me on a very cold afternoon at Imperial College in London. Let's get straight into it. Um, so I'm here with David and Mark. Uh, you have a book called The Playful Entrepreneur, How to Adapt and Thrive in Uncertain Times. Uh, I'm here at uh, Imperial College, just done the walk past all the, the hordes of half-term tourists going to the Science Museum and mm. uh, Natural History Museum and all the other places around this uh, lovely little part of London. Uh, and I'm also going to be around. Um, you're you're kind of launching the book at Imperial this evening. That's correct. Yeah. Around for, mm. uh, before. Um, so let's just jump straight into the book um, first of all. So um, I uh, I really enjoyed it, and there was a lot, particularly in the the first part of the book, that talked about the kind of different uh, sort of stages of work, almost like a kind of sociological tour through work. So I kind of wrote down the Lunar Society and. Obviously, Max Weber, Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism, you know, stuff that I was quite familiar with. But then uh, a lot about um, John Ruskin and crafts and uh, some some of the history of uh, Taylor and Taylorism that I didn't know before as well. So just a really nice uh, kind of background, really, to the world of work. But what sort of struck me was that uh, a lot of what you're talking about in the book is how to bring a playful spirit to work itself mm. so let me just start by asking both of you why you thought and think that that's an important thing um, and your own kind of history of playfulness personally let me start then with an answer to that if i can um, play is very important because it's how we learn and so the playfulness that we are thinking about in the workplace is closely associated with how people learn and learn to do new things or learn to do things in a better way. And sadly, I think in many workplaces that is lacking. And Mark and I work on innovation and we've studied many different innovation processes, uh, written quite a number of books on innovation and learning and innovation go hand in hand. And so we've always been interested in how um, people learn in the workplace and how that contributes to innovation. 
and we equated that uh, for the sake of this book because we're interested in entrepreneurs um, with a degree of playfulness an yeah. exploratory sort of attitude and mindset and I, I think you could also see that as being quite a serious endeavor mm. Um, you know people equate play with having fun and we hope people have fun but you can also play quite seriously if you're trying to win something yeah um, think about playing sport right it can be a serious endeavor so that that was the starting point I think and there was also a thing in there um, so you had this really lovely analogy of play and description of play as being think more like Roger Feder Federer than like House of Cards mm -hmm. which I thought was a really nice way of sort of getting that point across it's it's something that we further develop in the book with the idea of the noble entrepreneur mm. and how what entrepreneurs do can be considered noble in the sense that they really are um, trying to change things for good um, one of the things we're trying to capture in the book I think is a change in the in the zeitgeist or the way of thinking about entrepreneurs which has been uh, rather um, co coloured by TV programs such as Shark Tank and yeah. this hyper-aggressive yeah. dog-eat-dog, only one winner approach and the sort of veneration of the kind of managers that we loathe who are egotistical and self-serving and so on. And the rapid growth that we see in, in, in business schools and, uh, and, and, and more broadly in interest in social entrepreneurship and people wanting to make a difference to society yeah. of which they're a part. So we're trying to capture part of that and the idea of, of, of being competitive and being noble at the same time is mm. something that we, yeah. we like. Yeah, and so you've got these four noble behaviours and the one that most stood out to me was, was grace, which you're kind of talking about there, I guess. Yeah. Um, and we, just we like to use old-fashioned terms, you know. Yeah, uh, the, so got, grace is 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 a marvelous word and used in very many ways in many many senses, but it really captures the, the generosity of spirit of mm -hmm. the people we were studying, the people who recognise that they can't do everything by themselves. Yeah, um, and giving credit and support to the people around you is a sure fire strategy, you know. What was the American president who said that, you know, it's remarkable what you can achieve if you're not concerned with who gets the credit? Yeah, yeah. Woodrow Wilson or something yeah. But anyway, um, this, this idea, this absence of hubris mm. in, and, and this generosity of spirit is crucially important. Yeah, and I think it, what struck me most about it was that you, I mean, there is such a culture of the Dragon's Den apprentice, uh, you know, kind of media coverage of entrepreneurship in a business. And even when you look at the shelves of, you know, management books in WX Smith's Travelers, you go to an airport or, or whatever, a lot of them are about that sort of sense of winning and dominating and, you know, it sort of, it, you know, it's a slightly kind of selfish, self-driven kind of thing. But actually, when business and building teams and having that ability to innovate comes a lot from trust, it just feels like it just struck me as something that, there's very little written about what grace and building those relationships, building trust actually looks like in, in business and in work and in life. It just doesn't seem to come up in the same... Let, let me give you two reasons why I think it's important at the moment. Um, and both of them are really driven by um, 
uh, the conditions that we, we see around us. So on one side, um, some of the students that are coming through to our universities these days want to be entrepreneurial but they want to have an impact more widely than just making money. Yeah. So we've seen the rise of social enterprises, right? Yeah. Um, where for sure people um, want to make money. There's nothing wrong with that, but they want to do something more than that. And I think that uh, it, it's, a, it's a different flavor from that dragon's den, you know, winner takes all. Um, the other thing is that, uh, particularly in the world that I inhabit here at Imperial, and I know uh, Mark does in, in University of Queensland, we are coaching entrepreneurs who've come from deep science. And they're trying to do extraordinarily difficult things mm. uh, that may or may not work. And if they do work, they may make a huge impact in the long term. Um, you think about you know, new autoimmune therapy for um, cancers uh, treatment. Uh, these these types of um, ideas require patience and team work and collaboration. And they're not the sort of ideas that you're going to go on TV and get bashed up for half an hour in a Dragon's Den show on. I mean, it's a shame that we don't have um, a wider viewpoint on, on what it's like and what it takes to be an entrepreneur um, on our TVs at the moment. But that culture is very different. It's very di very serious in one sense, trying to develop a business that will um, create new forms of renewable energy or, or cancer treatments, as I said. But you don't necessarily have... Um, uh, the, the same culture as you do, you know, in, in the fast and loose world uh, that we sometimes see portrayed in in our TV shows. Um, just in terms of the social entrepreneurial aspect of that, so as someone who I've, I've sort of been around the social enterprise world a lot over the last few years, um, would I guess describe myself as a social entrepreneur? But I suppose my my inkling is that social entrepreneurs. And well, social, social enterprises struggle to scale sometimes, mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like there are many examples of really mainstream mm -hmm. businesses that are following that that social entrepreneurial route. Do you think that's changing? And how do you see that sort of future of, of social enterprise and, and the role of the social entrepreneur? Well, all entrepreneurs find it difficult to scale. I mean, it's yeah, not true. It's, it's all, yeah. there's very yeah. few uh, companies from the pool of entrepreneurial startups yeah, actually grow point. to any size. Yeah. So I, I think there's, there's an automatic skewedness there. Um, I think there is a, there is a change in broader views about financing social enterprises that, that's improved, uh, more philanthropists interested in supporting it, so there's a greater pool mm -hmm. of money which yeah. may help yeah. scale. There's greater expertise, there's more educational programs, training programs that are helping. So, and as you get more successes, there'll be more examples, more opportunities to mentor and so on. So I think the, the base is growing for success in the future. Yeah, and I saw a little while ago this, the guy, do you know who I'm talking about? The guy who was uh, one of the early employees of Facebook, I think it's called Shrina something. And he was, there was an interview which got a lot of traction because he was basically slagging off the business model of Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, but part of the rest of that interview was him basically saying, you know, had this huge level of personal ambition um, of, I think there are 20 people in the world who control the world and they sit around a table and my first job is to get to that table. But the reason I want to be at that table is because I want to invest in and build businesses around stuff like, you know, eliminating diabetes and 
really big mm. vision sort of stuff. And so he, and he's working on that stuff now with the money essentially that he got from being one of the early Facebook employees. Mm. Um, and I thought that was interesting because that felt like a different model of social enterprise or entrepreneurism than yeah. what I'm used to seeing. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think the other side of this question is uh, we all like scale and we all want to see uh, some businesses grow large and um, have a very big impact. But uh, let's not think that every business has got to be big or that all entrepreneurs need to scale at, at the same speed. And actually, social enterprises sometimes serve local communities. Mm. And, you know, in our book, part of the, 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 the mix of the case studies celebrate diversity. So we've tried to choose cases um, from different countries, from people with different backgrounds, uh, people at different stages in their careers. And uh, we think diversity is a good thing because that aids learning, yeah. you know, it's stimulating. And actually, the world is still very different in different parts. So we do need different approaches. And, uh, you know, scale isn't everything. It's really important. And it's important that we see um, companies scale uh, from different parts of the world and don't just celebrate the great ones from parts of the US or China. Um, but, uh, you know, smaller businesses, smaller um, uh, social enterprises can serve very useful purpose and yeah. um, be really good places to work. And I guess the question there is, are we getting more scale in terms of the number of those social mm. enterprises as well, right? So they could all be small, but mm. are we seeing more of that? Like, you recognise that, that you're seeing more of that? We recognise certainly yeah. more of our students are interested in seem to be interested in forming um, social enterprises in, in different ways. So, you know, anecdotally, I think there's a there's a buzz in the air about that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And just look at the number of hack spaces or yeah. collaborative workspaces yeah. that, are, that are starting up all around the place. Every city in the world's got dozens of these places starting up now. Um, the maker movement and, mm. uh, and, and so on. There's, there's, a, there's a real growth in, in supportive infrastructure for these kinds of companies now as well. Yeah, um, you mentioned case studies there and different people that you talk about in the book. And um, uh, one of the ones that really stood out for me was Steve Shirley. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just just give a little bit of the story of, of Steve Shirley. Well, she's a remarkable woman. Um, I spent uh, an afternoon with her talking to her and she's in her 80s but mm. she um, she has more energy than I do wow. and when she thought I was wrong she certainly <laughs> didn't hold back in letting me know um, absolutely a remarkable woman terrible start in life she's one of the kinder transport children who escaped Nazi Germany and left her family behind and came as a six year old to the UK and uh, had a, uh, a, a a loving foster parent, but terrible schooling. Girls weren't taught mathematics. Her name is Stephanie Shirley. She mm. had to change her name to Steve later. Um, so she, she, girls weren't taught maths, so she had to go to a boys' school to learn some maths. She got a job in the post office research centre and grew, but um, hit the glass ceiling for women in those days. Um, started working for the private sector and then hit the glass ceiling again. So, so enough of this. So she started up her own company selling software, which in the 60s was a very adventurous thing to do. No one realized that you had to buy software. And she started up a very interesting business model because it was run entirely by women. And those days, uh, women couldn't work up. They got married in many 
careers. So if you're in the public service, you, know, you got married, you had to leave. Mm. So there were these astonishingly well-credentialed women with degrees in physics and chemistry and maths and sitting at home. Um, and so she used their expertise to be able to write software. She coordinated it. And the company had its ups and downs and um, she uh, battled through. She had some personal uh, issues, which uh, she's very open about in her excellent book, uh, uh, Autobiography. Um, and uh, she eventually became one of the wealthiest people in the UK and then um, devoted her post, I won't call it retirement, she'll never retire, but post uh, company time to giving her wealth away. Yeah. And uh, it's been remarkably strategic and successful in the way she's done it. And she was also someone who played with the whole sort of notion of what a company is. So having an ethos of wanting everybody to work from home, mm -hmm. bringing um, workers into positions of holding shares in the company to yes. quite a large Yes, she, she, uh, she, she, she gave away a, a, a lot of the share ownership. And I think when the company went private, they created something like 60 millionaires. Wow. So she was uh, wow. very, very good. And, and when she, that model of having people at work uh, broke down a bit and there was the equal uh, opportunities or some legislation which prevented her from just employing women. She started mm -hmm. a different kind of model, but she built her offices um, near motorway intersections so that people could get there very easily. Right, okay. And she, at one stage, she was go going to sell the company um, very close to selling it and she found out that the purchasers were going to close down the crash huh. and she said yeah. no that's not the kind of company that uh, I started and I so she pulled the sale mm. <laughs> um, remarkable woman. and she was called Steve she called herself Steve because um, the bank wouldn't give her a bank account because she wasn't a man yeah. at the time so she had to take well, the you, Steve. you had to get your husband's permission to open a bank account <laughs> and yeah. she found that if she was writing to customers uh, clients you know, they, they responded more to her name being Steve and she's Stephanie and there was a thing um, that went viral a couple of years ago, which was basically a, a modern day worker doing exactly that. So cha she changed her name on her email signature uh -huh. to something else and right. became male. And then just yeah. got more acceptances when she sent out, you know, yeah. emails to people and she mm. did a bunch of women and just like things like that. Mm. Um, so it shows what a pioneer. Yeah, she, she, she is she, extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary um, one. Yeah. Um, I suppose in terms of the the jobs that you've done, I read a thing uh, towards the beginning of the book that lists a whole load of jobs that you've done in your careers. Um, toy factory worker, animal feed maker, uh, aluminium ladder factory worker. <laughs> that was you, David. As well as obviously being university professors and advisors to government. Um, was there a particular light bulb for either of you or both of you just on you know, maybe in working in one of your early jobs that made you start to question how do we organise work and, and, you know, like sort of spark that interest in, in sort of developing research around how we work? Well, I think we say in the book that our experience of the work has ranged from some of the most miserable experiences of our lives to some of the most rewarding. And certainly some of the jobs I had in my early career were really miserable and horrible. Yeah. What was um, the most miserable? Oh, um, the animal feed where, company where I had to carry sacks of meat and bone, uh, 100 weight sacks upstairs uh, in leaky sacks. So by the end of the day, my hair was matted and stuck to the back of my head with 
<laughs> blood and guts and oh it was revolting that's so nice. sitting in a, in a, in a university with a nice warm office yeah. <laughs> <laughs> comfortable chair that's yeah. uh, completely uh, the much much nicer thing to do uh, what was your worst experience of work David? I once was working on um, in a uh, mechanical engineering uh, business that was making pumps and uh, they were testing them and someone hadn't closed off uh, a valve and uh, they were testing pumping diesel and someone shouted to me to put my arm in it with a rag and I got covered in diesel. It was horrible actually. Oh. But I think in, in those days, health and safety um, in Britain was not what it is today. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I've worked, uh, I've worked a lot in the construction and infrastructure industry and have done since uh, and still do. And we've seen huge improvement actually in uh, the way in which people are treated and people treat each other, thankfully, um, in particularly in what are difficult and dangerous working situations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the experience in in the early days when I started working, you know, student jobs or before, um, some of that wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things that came up in the book for me was uh, the idea of too much play. Mm. So you talk about. Um, maybe what people's preconceptions of play uh, might be. And I think you even referenced the David Brent thing in there where yes. he says, what is it? I'm, I'm going to be a friend first, a boss second, and an entertainer. An entertainer, first. yes. Um, and so uh, people have a, a slightly negative view of play, and actually what you're talking about is something quite different from that in terms of playing with hmm. ideas, playing with problems and everything else. How do you get that message across to people, and how does that... But by emphasizing how serious it is yeah. and how important it is and how necessary it is you know, all organizations are confronted by massive problems external yeah. internal um, and we need to find a whole range of solutions to those and play is one of those if yeah. it's serious if it's not frivolous you know when we say you need to play more that's not go and play on your uh, you know, on the computer play computer games it's actually experiment more explore more um, oh, the famous the famous line: "Work the problem," yeah, you know, from yeah. the Apollo thirteen. You know, it's it's one yeah. of those forms of play actually yeah. that is needed here. And a fr friend of ours wrote a, a fantastic book called Serious Play, Michael Schrag, um from MIT, and uh, you know, it really sets out a landscape where if one doesn't experiment you quickly run out of ideas that are going to fuel the future. Yeah. And so there is a serious endeavour here, which goes back to that question about how companies and organisations innovate. And, and, and that, I think, you know, sets some limits about um, playing all the time in every direction. You know, you need some focus. Yeah. Why, why do you play? You play to improve. And unless you're improving and getting satisfaction and meaning out of mm. what you're doing, um, I, mean, I guess some people do get meaning out of sitting on their asses playing computer games all day long, but um, most people don't. Yeah. Most people want improvement. They want to learn new things themselves and see the benefit of their labour in the organisations they work in. Yeah. Um, there was the example of 9-11 in the book, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Mm. MI5. The lessons of yeah. MI5 no, or the, the 9-11. That was the, uh, the Freedom Tower. Yeah. Uh, the replacement for the Twin Towers. Um, most people died in the Twin Towers, were trapped in the stairwell, where people 
coming down the stairwell were trapped by firefighters going up. Um, and after that, there was a great deal of interest, of course, in people who worked in large buildings about how to get them out of buildings in case of extreme events. And uh, we worked with uh, a design engineering company that was exploring how best to do that. And then they developed certain, a lot of software packages that looked at the, how steel and concrete reacts to force and to fire and how smoke behaves, but also how people behave. They've simulated a model how people of different groups, families, friends going to a sporting event, whatever, different groups of people responded in extreme events. And put all together, they came to the startling conclusion that provided you can blow the smoke out of the, the lift, in case of fire, you use the lift, you get more people down using the lift, which is totally counter to mm. everything we're always taught. And contingent on the fact you can blow the smoke out, so don't go doing it in any buildings that uh, haven't been properly designed for that. Um, but that's, that's the solution. But then they had to sell the solution to very sceptical people. They had to sell them to the building owners, to the insurers of the building, the occupants of the building. They had to sell them to the fire authorities and the regulators, the, the, the fire people, the firefighters who were actually going to risk their lives going into these places. And what they did is they used a computer program to simulate how it all worked and got people involved and engaged in the model. Um, so their initial scepticism, if not hostility, changed as they themselves could input in. So, you know, the firefighters said, well, you can't put a fire hose there, you need to put it there. And the insurers said, well, this is our concern. And, mm. and people with different disabilities said, well, we need this, that and the other. So you started a conversation around a digital model, um, which enabled more people to be involved and, and, and more accepted view. And now in the Freedom Tower, one of the means of getting out is using the... Uh, using the lift yeah. so it was a technology which helped the conversation that allowed people with very different backgrounds and experiences or in different professions to be able to understand what the other was saying and put input into the the final solution the outcome yeah um, I know you guys have got to head off shortly and start setting up your event so I'll ask you a final question in sort of two parts really um, but for someone listening to this if you're interested in innovation in taking a problem and playing with it do you have um, some some quick thoughts or sort of quick models or tips that would help people to do that and then the second part of that is what are you guys doing that around right now what are the things that you're currently playing with that would be interesting to share uh, I mean the people we work with and <coughs> most of, I think if not all the case studies in the book uh, are people who have honed their capabilities in at least one area um, and that's the craft we haven't talked much mm, about craft yeah. there are many um, different studies of craft uh, people talk about 10,000 hours of practice and uh, we like that actually mm. it's really good if people are good at something uh, as a starting point and uh, so one of the tips I would say is you know be sure you know what part of a process or an idea you're good at and where are the gaps who else do you need to bring into your team and the entrepreneurs who move fast often are good at identifying um, who they need to bring in and finding those people and mm -hmm. filling some of the gaps in the skill sets and capabilities that, that they need uh, to hone their idea into shape 
So maybe they have a craft themselves, but it's also about how they recognize craft in other people. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And respect for yeah. it, respect for it as well. Yeah. Um, uh, the, too many people think they can do everything themselves. And um, I'm not so interested in that, actually. Uh, I think most uh, uh, ideas come to life when you've got a, a mix of good people who bring something, each something different to the table and, and can move things fast. Yeah. Um, my suggestion is they buy the book and read the <laughs> particular the, the final bit on it, which is a manifesto for the modern yeah. management, which has got a checklist of questions you can ask yourself about uh, how, how, how playful you are and how these various behaviours that we identify uh, are relevant for you in your workplace. Mm. On what we're doing now, well, David has got a massive portfolio of different kinds of jobs. Um, I'm um, just enjoying... Um, the book <laughs> and trying to get uh, uh, more, more uh, readership and uh, get the ideas diffused a bit more. Uh, we started a, a small company called the Playful Work Company, which we're going to look about how to further the ideas in the book. Um, but um, I think the main lesson is that, uh, and uh, maybe I'm in more fortunate position than Dave because I don't have his responsibilities, is, is that uh, life's short play more mm. nice. <laughs> uh, anything to add about your personal play at the moment I mean uh, the, 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 the one area of my uh, work at the, and life at the moment I'm um, excited about particularly is the UK Atomic Energy Authority I've just taken over chairmanship of that and um, uh, work on fusion uh, as an energy source is really accelerating and it's very difficult to do it's another one of these big deep science plays that's been around for a while but um, in Britain we're very good at it um, on the science side and the excitement I have is how do we um, move from that uh, towards commercialization and how fast can we um, move towards it and what can we do um, on that journey to create some really useful spillovers in areas like robotics and new materials and um, there's extraordinary capability and I'm excited about um, helping uh, as, a, as part of the team getting that out uh, and doing something useful with it. Well, and Mark mm. mentioned a, a huge portfolio of other things that you're doing. Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I'm fortunate in sitting on a few boards as well as my, my day job here at Imperial College mm. is, is pretty exercising and <laughs> uh, we're building a new campus. Uh, I, I wish we could call it the Play Campus, actually. It's, it's an innovation campus at White City, mm. um, which is developing a new model of how a university interacts with startups and larger companies and organizations to create the future. So that's fun, and I've been heavily involved in well, that. We do a whole podcast yeah. just about that yeah yeah you're very welcome to do another time um but just one other quick touch point i'm on the board of a graphene company and uh you know that's a new material with exciting properties and um the company i'm on the board of has got products now in bicycle tires you know winning races like the giro Mm. and um clothing keeps you warmer or cooler and uh, in uh, industrial products like water decontamination. I'm very excited about how we build uh, businesses like that uh, to serve a useful purpose. Just mention one other company that I'm involved with that uh, David knows well. It's mm-hmm. it's a company called Behaviour Innovation, which is using behavioural science to try and change the behaviour of populations of people. And it's doing work uh, in Queensland trying to save the Great Barrier Reef. By changing the water management of uh, sugarcane farmers, and it's done remarkably well. Um, It's now trying to use this behavioural science to stop 
um, people driving into the back of one another in cars, <laughs> a very popular thing to do, especially when it rains. So they're using behavioral science to change population beha behavior, which is the sort of nudge approach that we've, yeah. we've seen, yeah. but extended to move from individual nudges to individual behavior to broad population changes. And that's a very exciting thing. Wow. So you guys have lots of interesting uh, problems. To he, he, hasn't, he hasn't mentioned half of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so where, where can people find, find out about you and about the book? Uh, just give us the sort of, how can people get hold of you? Uh, well, the, the book is available in all good bookshops, <laughs> um, Amazon and, and so forth. Uh, and um, the, the details uh, can be, be found, uh, our names and affiliations can be found in the book. And are you on social media or on LinkedIn? You can find me on LinkedIn, David Gann on LinkedIn and um, Imperial College website. Just, I mean, I hate to say the word Google in some senses, but Google our names. And <laughs> I think uh, if you Google you'll David find Gann, you'll find us on pretty Twitter quickly. And, yeah. Yeah. Twitter feeds, yeah. Fantastic. Well, great chatting and uh, looking forward to the event this evening. Thank you great. very much. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks very much. That's nice. So thanks again to Mark and to David for being on the show and go and check out their book, The Playful Entrepreneur. Um, thanks also to Mark Stedman, who's my producer on the show, and also to Think Productive, who are the sponsors of the show. We don't have the normal kind of sponsorship of the show where it's like, buy this thing, buy that thing. Obviously, we'd love you to go and do some Think Productive workshops, either some of our public workshops or get us in to work with your company. That's cool. You can find that at thinkproductive.com. But... I kind of think there's enough advertising in the world. I'm really, you know, we've just kind of had Black Friday and now everyone's into this whole Christmas shopping thing and all of that. And um, it really just bugs me how much when you go through Instagram, it's just buy this, buy that, buy this, buy that. And it just feels like the whole world is like that. So I'm making a big effort this Christmas to just buy as little as possible. And by that, I don't mean being a Scrooge and not buying anyone presents, but for presents, I'm buying people things like tickets and experiences and just stuff that is not just more things to clog up their houses, you know. So just really encourage you to think along the same lines. I know a lot of people do anyway, but um, yeah, I just think we need to, as a society, start consuming a lot less stuff and having a lot less particularly plastic and uh, just really bad materials in our houses and in all the stuff that we create. I'm trying to also, with my little boy, I'm trying to buy all his clothes secondhand and stuff like that and just trying to do things that are just a bit more responsible just generally for the planet. So um, as we get into that Christmas season, which can be a real time of uh, gluttony and lots of spending and lots of filling our houses with stuff, um, just really a good time to kind of take stock of all that. So hope you'll do the same. And uh, that's it for this week. I'm looking out onto my garden right now and I'm being visited by my little friend, the woodpecker, Bill the woodpecker. I've nicknamed him Bill. Don't know why. Uh, but he has been visiting me for a couple of weeks and just really one of those little um, little moments where you go, yeah, this is what matters in life, not buying more stuff. It's like the little bonds that you have with woodpeckers. All good. Uh, we will be back in two weeks' time with another episode. Uh, before that, you can catch... Uh, all the previous episodes and all the show notes and stuff at getbeyondbusy.com. So go and check out getbeyondbusy.com and I'll see you in two weeks' time. Take care for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by Podient. To find out more, visit podiantproductions.com.